Well, we began this series last week, and uh, we began a four-part series called Choose Joy. And for some, life is full of adventure and fun, and for others, it's full of drama and conflict. But the Bible helps us how to figure out uh, how to choose joy whether times are good or times are hard. And for this series, we're looking at each of the four chapters of the book of Philippians, and we're finding principles that we can put into practice in our life so that we can learn to live with joy. And last week, uh, chapter one helped us to find joy on hard days. And today's principle is a simple one. To choose joy, you have to work on your relationships. Last week, we talked about how our relationships can be a source of joy for us on hard days, but we also acknowledge that sometimes it's our relationships that create our hard days. So today, we want to use some of the verses from Philippians chapter 2 to talk about how we can find joy by improving our relationships, because to really choose joy in relationships we have to get along with people. But in, unfortunately, many people don't. Many don't play nice with others. They don't get along with others. And it, to be getting, it seems to be getting worse and worse. Our leaders can't just politely disagree with each other's policies and ideas. They have to label each other horrible names or compare them to evil leaders from past times or belittle them personally. And it isn't, it isn't just politics. We hear all the time about conflict. In June of this year, just over a month ago, there was a report in the news about a fistfight breaking out at a youth baseball game in Lakewood, Colorado. Here's part of the article that appeared. Police are calling on parents to grow up after a fight broke out at a youth baseball game near Denver. Parents and coaches were unhappy with a call made by the 13-year-old umpire during Saturday's game, according to the Lakewood Police Department. They then stormed the field and began punching each other as the 7-year-old players looked on. Twelve people were injured were arrested and several were injured one seriously and we can shake our head at that and uh, we can shake our head in disgust and say we would never be part of something like that but even though most of us have never thrown physical punches most of us are not strangers to attacks like this most of us have sat in a conversation where someone was being attacked and ripped to shreds verbally and sadly most of us have joined in from time to time. I hear far too often about family conflict, husbands and wives that are at war with each other while living in the same house, brothers and sisters that don't speak to each other. And it shouldn't be that way in families, but it is. It is. And as sad as we think that is, we think, well, at least Christianity is different. At least Christ's church is a place of love, full of Jesus and free from conflict, right? Well, no, that's not right. It's supposed to be, but it isn't. Here's a report from April of 2009. Let me read part of it. Christians brawl at Jesus' tomb. 
Dozens of Greek and Armenian priests and worshipers exchanged blows at one of Christianity's holiest shrines on Orthodox Palm Sunday and used palm fronds to pummel police who tried to break up the brawl. The fight came amid growing rivalry over religious rites at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre built over the site in Jerusalem where tradition says Jesus was buried and resurrected. It erupted when Armenian clergy kicked out a Greek priest from their midst, pushed him to the ground, and kicked him, according to witnesses. Now, we'll be visiting that church in November, and I'll tell you some uh, other stories of Christians fighting there. Recently, very recently, two priests from different groups fought with brooms as they both tried to sweep dirt from their area into the other one's area. Unfortunately, Many churches experience conflict in relationships too. There was apparently some conflict in the church in Philippi that Paul was writing this letter to. He alludes to people opposing them in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. And he even gives us names of two ladies who have a disagreement in chapter 4. And while writing this letter about choosing joy, Paul seems to say we need to get along with people. That isn't easy. Someone has written to live above with those we love. Oh, that will be glory. To live below with those we know. Well, that's a different story. And I don't think that there's more conflict in churches than there is in most companies or clubs. But the point is, I don't think there's less either, and there should be. And I don't know that there is less conflict uh, in the relationships of people who are following Jesus than there uh, is in those uh, that aren't, but there should be. So let me give you three key strategies from Philippians 2 for choosing joy in your relationships. The first is this, focus on where you agree. Focus on where you agree. Part of what keeps us from getting along with people is we tend to focus on areas of disagreement rather than areas of agreement. We didn't do it that way always and not all in all of our relationships usually when a relationship begins we are focusing on areas where we agree things that we have in common i mean think about your dating relationships back when you were in high school we didn't uh, focus on what we disagreed with them i mean we found everything that we could in common as a sign that we were compatible i had a friend say to me in high school it was meant to be Her phone number has three fives in it, and mine has exactly three sixes. And we know five and six are meant to be together. And he was serious. He was serious. When dating and before we get married, we focus on all of the things that we have in common. But after we get married, we tend to concentrate on the ways we're different and We begin to try to fix those. But Jesus uh, has shown us an attitude emphasizing unity with people. We concentrate on what we have in common, not our differences. Look at what it says in Philippians 2 verses 1 and 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort in his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, 
loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Like I said before, the people in Philippi who were receiving this letter uh, were struggling with some disagreements and some arguing among themselves. And what Paul is telling them is it helps our relationships when we focus on the areas where we disagree with, uh, where we agree with people rather than the areas where we disagree. And that's good advice when we find ourselves in conflict with another person. Instead of emphasizing disagreements, we need to emphasize uh, what we agree. Ask yourself, what do we have in common? Have you thought lately about all of the things you have in common with other people who are followers of Jesus? The passage points out several things we have in common. First of all, it talks about the encouragement of belonging to Jesus. As Christ followers, we have been touched by his grace and by his forgiveness. We have been accepted by him and we have trusted him uh, to give us eternal life. And so we belong to Jesus. And when we get frustrated with someone... We need to remember that they have been forgiven, that they have been accepted by Jesus too. Remember, if they are Christ followers, that we will be in heaven with them forever. So we probably should figure out how we're going to get along here on earth. He also mentions the comfort of loving like Jesus. The verse refers to the comfort that comes from his love. And this is the comfort we receive when we realize that God loves us no matter how much we mess things up. But I think it also refers to the comfort that we get when we really let the love of Jesus flow out of us to other people. When I show love to someone who doesn't deserve it, I love like Jesus and I ultimately uh, find that that's comforting to me. He also mentions the fellowship of changing through Jesus. The verse refers to Uh, the fellowship together in the Spirit. It's referring to the Holy Spirit, the part of God that comes to live inside of us after we commit our life to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit's job to comfort us, to give to us uh, hope and to correct us and give to us the assurance of salvation to motivate us to serve Jesus, to point out areas of sin in our life or the areas where we need to change. And so uh, what we have in common with other Christians, with other Christ followers, is the Spirit of God who is constantly making changes in our lives. When I recognize Jesus is changing me, and he is working to change you, I will be less frustrated when you do something wrong, because we're both people who are in this fellowship of people who are changing constantly to become like Jesus. The next one is the adventure of living for Jesus. The rest of the verses talk about us concentrating on what we have in common, being like-minded, having the same love, uh, partnering with the Spirit so that we can get things done for Jesus. We are to have the same mind and the same purpose to accomplish what God has called us to do here on earth. As a church, we're working together to move forward his plan of helping people who are far from God to pursue God and to be able to find his peace. We're uh, working to get people to unleash compassion towards those who are hurting and lost to help them to find the love of God. And we're working to build community so that together we can all grow stronger and more mature in Jesus. Having his purpose 
and moving toward it is part of the adventure of living for Jesus. It's a huge part of what unites us. So to choose joy in my relationships, I begin by focusing on where I agree with people instead of where I disagree. Secondly, to choose joy in your relationships, decide to be second. Decide to be second. Now, let's just admit it. We don't like to be second. We don't like that at all. I mean, we talk about looking out for number one. And in our minds, most of the time, I'm number one. I'm the one that I want to look out for. And uh, we come by this somewhat naturally. It starts when we're babies. I mean, when you're a baby, the world revolves around you. The world revolves around babies. Smile and the world smiles back at you. That's what happens when you're a baby. Cry and someone jumps up to meet your needs. You know, they feed you or they hold you or they change you. And our baby mind thinks, this is a pretty sweet life. The whole world revolves around me. Everybody loves me. I just cry and they meet my needs. And then something happens. Usually a brother or a sister comes into the world and they smile too. And they cry too. And they get held too. Now, now, in this situation, we sometimes have to wait before we get their attention, you know, because they're smiling at that other baby. They're holding that other baby, and eventually someone says, hey, stop crying. Come on, buddy. Be tough. Be a big boy. Be a big girl. And we don't like it. So you know what we do? <laughs> we throw fits. That's what we do. We throw fits trying to be number one again trying to get attention again and here's the sad truth as we get older the way we cry out for attention may change but many times in many ways we're still saying notice me i want to be number one but to really make our relationships different and to really become like jesus i have to learn to be second. I have to learn to be second. Look at what it says in verses 3 and 4. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So Paul, when he wrote, wrote this letter, started here because of the problems in the church. And we don't know all of the details of them, but apparently the pride and selfishness of some people was getting in the way of God, of what God wanted to do through this church. And we never see that today, do we? Unfortunately, we do. Too often, Christians are not known as humble people. We're not known as humble people. I mean, what we sometimes think comes across as boldness or confidence in the Lord often is like outright arrogance to people who are not yet Christians. But the solution to the problem is to be humble. It's to think of others as better than myself. Or to say it a different way, the solution is for me to just make the decision to be second. That's a pretty important lesson 
if I'm going to learn to put others first. I've got to learn to be second. So what does deciding to be second involve? Well, the first thing it involves is thinking of others. Thinking of others. I mean, if I'm going to learn to be second, then I have to actually think about them. I have to notice them. I have to notice that they have needs. I have to be just at least a little bit sensitive to them. Have you noticed that sometimes the biggest hurt that can happen in your life isn't when someone thinks badly of you. It's when they don't think of you at all. It's when they don't think of you at all. One of my favorite quotes is, we would worry less about what others think of us if we realized how seldom they do. People just don't think about others. And so learning to be second starts with thinking about others. Secondly, it involves thinking of others as more important, as more important. This is where following Jesus is supposed to be different from what everyone else does. Everyone else looks out for themselves, and in uh, certain cases, they may put the needs of others on the same level as their own needs. As a follower of Jesus, I'm supposed to make your needs more important than mine, a higher priority than my own needs. How would your marriage be different today if you said to your spouse, I'm second, I'm second, I want to focus on what you need instead of what I need? How would your perspective of church change if you said, my desires and what I like are second to the desires and the needs of people who are far from God? How would you do your job differently if you decided to be second and to help others around you succeed while doing your job with excellence? How would things change with your parents or with your kids or with your friends or with your neighbors if you decided to be second in all of those relationships, if you did those things, would there be less conflict in your relationships? I'm betting there would. And I bet that it would create joy in your life as well. Basically, deciding to be second is choosing joy by becoming others-oriented in every situation, in every relationship in my life. Let's look at one more strategy. If you want to choose joy in your relationships, adjust your attitude. Adjust your attitude. About 20, maybe 25 years ago now, I was returning home after my second or third tour group to Israel. And our plane had left Tel Aviv a little bit late. It had arrived in Houston a little bit late and I knew it was going to be tight for us to get to our connecting flight. And so as I was leaving the plane, I said to one of the flight attendants, I said, would you please call ahead? We have a group of, I think it was 22 of us that are uh, going to race through customs and we're going to go right to this plane. It looks like it's going to be close. Would you call ahead and let them know that that group is on its way? And she said, oh, thank you for telling me. Yes, I'll do that. She picked up a phone, right? So I thought, good. So we go and we get our baggage and we're going through customs and I'm thinking, I'm just going to be sure so I find another employee of the, that airline. And uh, I said the same thing to them and they said, yes, sir, we'll do that. And so we get through customs. We're racing. I mean, literally running to this gate. And um, when I get to the gate, the sign above, the, the clock above the door says uh, that we still have one minute to go. 
but the door's closing. And there's a gate attendant standing there, and I start yelling, the group, we've got this group, and, you know, and she kind of smirked at me while the door continued to close. And I'm saying, you've got to let us on this plane. We've got a group. She said, I know some of your group is already on the plane. That made it worse, by the way. That wasn't better, you know. That made it worse. And so my attitude wasn't real good. I mean, I'm asking for a supervisor not nicely. And then they uh, eventually the plane backs away, and I'm still thrown a fit. It was not pretty. My friend Roger Storms, who I usually have to calm down, was going, calm down, Steve, calm down. And I knew it was bad when he was calming me down. Anyway, I'm now at customer service, and I'm letting them know what I think of this. I even said, I'm not proud of it, but what I said was, if I ran my church the way you run your airline, everybody would go to hell. I know, bad, wasn't it? And we still didn't get on the plane. You understand. So, my, my attitude was really bad, and so was theirs. There was another time, about five years, six years after that, that um, I overslept. I had a flight that I was supposed to take, and I overslept. We raced to the airport. I raced through security, and again, I got to the door that was closed, but a few minutes before the plane was supposed to take off, and, um, and there was a gate agent standing there, and she had this evil smile on her face, and she said, I'm betting you're Mr. Hammer, and I said, yeah, I am, and it's my fault. I overslept, and uh, I'm just really sorry. I've never done that before, but I overslept. And she says, well, I'm sorry. You're going to miss this plane, and uh, I don't have another seat until late this afternoon. And um, I said, well, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll have to work that out. It's totally my fault, but I'm supposed to be leading a meeting two hours before that plane even takes off, but I'll figure it out. And she said, well, I guess you'll learn not to oversleep. And I said, I, I guess I will. It's a hard lesson, but it's my fault. And so I went to sit down, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do, and I'm about to make phone calls telling people who were supposed to be in my meeting that I wasn't going to be there to lead it. And about that time, the same Kate agent came over to me and handed me a boarding pass. She said, there's a plane that's leaving in about 30 minutes from a few gates down. And she said, I got you on that plane because you had a good attitude and you're, uh, you were very polite. My attitude was good, and so was hers. And I think many of the conflicts we face in life, maybe all of them, the problem could be resolved if we changed our attitude. If we adjusted our attitude. Philippians 2 has some great tips on how to have a great attitude. Let me point out just two. The first uh, tip for that is don't demand your rights 
Don't demand your rights. Look at verses 5 through the first part of verse 7. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. Jesus didn't demand his rights. And he could have. He could have looked down from heaven and he could have said, you know, we told you that if you sinned, you would be condemned. And you did it anyway. Oh, well, too bad, so sad. Jesus could have done that. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have held on to his equality with God. He had a right to do that. And even after coming to earth, when they put him through that fake trial that we talked about a few weeks ago, where they paraded liar after liar after liar to make up charges, he could have defended himself. He could have demanded his right, but he didn't. He gave up his rights so I could get to heaven, even though I don't deserve it. Here's the truth. If I want a better attitude, I have to be like Jesus. I have to stop demanding my rights and start serving people. There are many times in relationships when we can choose to scream about our rights being violated or we can realize that we're called to be like Jesus, to gladly sacrifice our rights for the sake of others. Now, if you do that begrudgingly, you've totally missed the point. You've totally missed the point. I give up my rights for the sake of Jesus and because I am in love with Jesus. When I refuse to demand my rights and I serve Jesus and others for the right reasons, my attitude improves. And by the way, the other person in the relationship may not get it. They might think they've won They may think that you're weak, that you're stupid, but you're not. You're like Jesus. You're like Jesus. They don't have to get it because you aren't concentrating on their attitude. You're focusing on adjusting your attitude. That is why you don't demand your rights. Now, if you thought that one was hard, the next one's even harder. Don't complain and argue. Don't complain and argue. I love the story of a man who always dreamed of going and joining a monastery. His goal in life was to become a monk. So one day he went to a monastery and he talked to the head monk and he said, what do I need to join? And the head monk told him that it was more difficult than what he was thinking. He said, in our monastery, monks are only allowed to say two words every year. It's complete silence the rest of the time, only two words every year. He said, well, that seems a bit extreme, but I've always wanted to be a monk, and so uh, I'm going to give it a try. So he was shown to his room, and for the next 12 months, he was completely silent. He never said a word. At the end of the first year, he was taken to the head monk, and uh, he was told that he could now say his two words, and the guy said, food bad. And... The head monk thanked him and he went back to 
his room for another 12 months, was silent for another 12 months. At the end of the second year, he was again taken to the monk uh, for his two words. This time he said, bed hard. And the head monk said, okay. And the man went back to his room. Another 12 months of silence passed. And he was brought again to the head monk for his annual two words. This time he said, I quit. And the head monk said, well, I'm not surprised. All you've done since you got here is complain, complain, complain. Well, look at what Paul wrote in verses 14 and 15. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Now, some of you may be thinking, that is a great verse to teach my children. It is. It really is a great verse. You teach your kids this. You have them memorize verse 14. And then every time they start to complain, you say, remember, do everything without complaining and arguing. It's a great verse to teach your kids. But if you teach your kids this, let me warn you, there will come a day when you will regret it. Because you will say something like, wow, it's really cold today or it's really hot today. And they will go, remember, do everything without complaining and arguing. You will hear it if you teach your kids that. But it's a great idea to teach your kids that. The word the passage uses for complaining in this passage in the Greek language was used for quiet murmuring. Quiet murmuring. It's the kind of complaints that are whispered in a group of disgruntled people. It isn't open conflict. It's the snide remarks and the sarcastic jokes and the quieter gossip and the slander that goes on many times uh, over lunch with friends. The word for arguing is the word for open debate. It is when the person gets vocal but not in a proper setting. They don't go to the person who they have an issue with. They proclaim their issues to groups of people hoping to rally support. And Paul is clear, if we have as our goal to live clean and pure, innocent lives in God's sight, both complaining and arguing need to stop. He is saying it is a sin that we should be working on getting rid of. And I'm not sure that the church talks enough about this sin of complaining and arguing. Somebody once said, it's not the things that I don't understand about the Bible that trouble me. It's the things I do understand. And I understand this scripture. It says we should work without complaining or arguing. We should serve without complaining or arguing. We should give without complaining and arguing and so much more. I understand this and it troubles me. You know why? Because I occasionally, okay, well, regularly complain and I sometimes argue. Yet the truth of the matter is complaining and arguing just shows my need for Jesus to keep working on my attitude. Notice the end of verse 15. It talks about us shining like bright lights or stars in a world full of crooked and perverse people. What in the world does that mean? What does that mean? I think it means he wants us to be different. 
to be different. He wants us to stand out from what seems to be normal around us. And we will stand out if we stop complaining, if we stop arguing. Our relationships really can be a source of joy for us, a source of uh, uh, joy instead of a source of constant frustration and hurt. And you get to choose which. You can choose joy in your relationships. And some of you might have to end some relationships that aren't healthy and develop some healthy relationships. But most of us, we just need to work to improve the relationships that we already have. And that happens when we focus on areas where we agree and uh, focus on creating more unity in our relationships. It happens when we decide to be second, to work to put the needs of others before our own needs. Deciding to be second really does mean that we begin to view people the way that Jesus views us. And we improve our relationships when we adjust our attitudes and become a servant rather than demanding our rights and by learning to do everything without complaining and arguing. I don't know about you, but I have some work to do in this area. I have some work to do in this area so that I can really choose joy in my relationships. So let's pray together, and you pray for me, and I'll pray for you in this important area. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you that you love us with an everlasting love, that you have been patient with us when we have not followed along in your path. And now, Father, would you improve our relationships? Would you improve our relationships, Father, as we focus on unity and uh, focusing on where we agree rather than where we disagree? Would you improve our relationships by helping us to decide to step back into second place? And, Father, we just give you permission to adjust our attitude to improve our attitudes. Father, forgive us for the times when we have really believed that it was good and godly somehow for us to demand our own way, demand our rights. And so, Father, would you help us to just submit to you? And, Father, would you silence the criticism, the arguing, the complaining, and help us, Father, to become encouragers and Father, we're just so thankful for Jesus. Father, we ask that you will make us like him. In Jesus' name, amen.